Funerals like the one you're hearing are happening for both civilians and soldiers all over Ukraine. And as long as Russia's attacks continue, so will deaths on both sides of the war. Recently, LA Times foreign correspondent Patrick McDonnell and photojournalist Wally Scully attended the funerals of two fallen Ukrainian soldiers. They also talked to a mayor who warned that the U.S. and NATO will eventually regret the decision to not step in and impose a no-fly zone over his country. So we were at the funeral today in, uh, in Stachy of, of two who were killed in the blast. Condolences, condolences, obviously. But then your following generations, they will feel shame to look into the eyes of our children who buried their kids and the parents who buried their kids. It's just one of the many stories Patrick and Wally have tracked over the past month, making their way from refugee-filled Poland to battle-scarred Ukraine with no ceasefire in sight. I'm Gustavo Ariano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. It's Wednesday, March 30th, 2022. Today, LA Times Mexico City Bureau Chief and Foreign Correspondent Patrick McDonald joins us from Lviv, Ukraine. We talked to him a few weeks ago, on March 17th, the day after the soldiers' funeral. That was back before Russian airstrikes hit Lviv, and things were much calmer in the city. Patrick, welcome to The Times. My pleasure, mi placer. Lviv is often described as this really beautiful city. The town center is actually a UNESCO World Heritage Site. You've been there now for a few weeks. What have you learned about what the city means to Ukraine? Well, it's basically the capital of the West, and you're, you're right. It is quite an extraordinary city. It's built in kind of Austro-Hungarian style. I spent a lot of time at the train station today, which is this massive, extraordinary structure of right now full of refugees. But it's uh, a city that's been, you know, occupied for, it was part of Poland for many decades. It's been occupied and reoccupied by various conquerors over the centuries. But it's, you know, very much Ukrainian now. And uh, as I said, kind of the capital of the Western end of Ukraine, about 40 miles so from the Polish border. We should say that things, of course, are changing quickly across Ukraine. But what's been happening in Lviv while you've been there? We have an ongoing refugee crisis. And I think the UN now said there have been about 3 million Ukrainian refugees that have left the country. More than half of those have probably gone into Poland. And most of those come kind of through this corridor. So it's become a phenomenal refugee center. About five days ago on Sunday, there was also a Russian cruise missile attack on a, an international training base about 30 or 40 miles from here, in which something more, more than 40 Ukrainian soldiers were killed, according to authorities. That was kind of a shock, a wake-up call for the region. And uh, then, of course, there have been, you know, funerals of soldiers who've been fighting on the front or were killed in that bombing, and their bodies have been brought home, and we've covered a couple of those. So I mentioned one of those funerals that you covered. It was in a village of about 3,000 in western Ukraine, about 15 miles from the Polish border, you told me. Two Ukrainian soldiers buried. What was that scene like? 
Basically, there were two soldiers who'd been killed in a recent Russian bombing at a nearby training base. And uh, here was this small, sleepy town. It was winter, very gray, somewhat of a farming area, but all the fields are fallow now. And they had this very elaborate service at the church. And hundreds of people came out in the town and lined the streets as this funeral cortege made its way to the cemetery. People were kneeling, making the sign of the cross. People were crying. I mean, I felt it was kind of a, a very moving example of how, you know, the war kind of comes home to a small town that's really actually, you know, many hundreds of miles from the major fronts. But, you know, where are these troops coming from? They're coming from small towns like this. And unfortunately, they send out their soldiers and some of them don't come back alive. There was a military brass band per your story. There was, you know, they hoisted the coffins into beat up Humvees that went to the cemetery. Who were the soldiers who were killed and how did they die? Both of them were, you know, uh, soldiers in their 40s and 50s who had you know, decades of experience. And both of those two who were buried that day had been assigned this military training base that's very close to that town. So they were basically in the dormitory or in their office when these missiles struck very early in the morning. So they were killed on site while they were at the training camp. The day before, there had been another burial in that town, and they were buried right next to this person's grave of another soldier who'd been killed on the front line in, in Kiev about a week earlier. So those three graves were together. So the two killed in the training ground, and then um, one who'd been killed some days earlier in Kiev while fighting at the front. Again, you know, the, the bodies coming home of these fighters who've been dispatched to various parts of the country. What do we know about the casualty numbers for Ukrainian soldiers so far, and also, for that matter, Russian casualties? I've covered a couple of wars, and casualty figures are among the most politicized aspects. The most fog of war affected the numbers that come out of war. I mean, every country wants to minimize its casualties and maximize the casualties of its adversary. So I think that the president of Ukraine a few days ago said there have been 1,300 Ukrainian soldiers killed which some people think is probably an underestimate. And I think the, the, the most official numbers we've gotten from Moscow were 500 Russian troops killed. Although I've seen estimates, independent estimates, and maybe U.S. estimates of more than 5,000 who've been killed. So we don't know, really. I, I mean, it's kind of more an art than a science, very often casualty figures in war. But it's clear that the death toll is high and has been growing. A lot of the attention is put on military casualties, but civilian casualties are also spreading across the region. You mentioned in Lviv how the war seems to still be a little bit far away, except that bombing of the base really jolted them. How is the spread of the war into these cities that were thought to be somewhat safe changing things for Ukrainians across the country? It's, it's, it has people in shock. I think that these people, have, these, a lot of these cities have been relatively stable for decades, by and large since World War II. Ukraine feels like, uh, you know, a pretty thriving economy. Things were doing pretty well. It was a large middle class. And then suddenly, you know, you have hospitals being bombed, apartment buildings being shelled. It's very shocking, you know, for people to live through this. And, you know, fleeing is about the only way to be safe. More on the ground coverage from the war in Ukraine after a quick break. And we're back with my colleague, Patrick McDonald. Patrick, 
You actually started your coverage in southeastern Poland a few weeks ago, covering the unfolding Ukrainian refugee crisis from the city of Shemesh. And that's normally a pretty calm and peaceful city. What's it like there now? It's a city of about 40 or 60,000 people, kind of a small agricultural town that's been transformed into a uh, major hub, a, a massive hub for refugees coming out of uh, Ukraine. And I, I think they've done it extraordinarily well. The, the train station, there's a big shopping center there that's been transferred into an aid station, but also kind of a place to find transport. So when you go there, there's all these buses that are just waiting to take people for free all over Europe. Literally, they'll have signs up Prague, Berlin, uh, other cities in Germany and elsewhere. A lot of people are going to Germany. Then there's drivers with signs offering lifts to Stuttgart, to Norway, to Amsterdam. And the key thing that the Poles are trying to do, as the Ukrainians are trying to do here in Western Ukraine, is just move people on. I mean, a town of 40, 40 50,000 like Shemes just can't handle a million people. So they just want to keep people moving. So they've, I think they've been pretty organized in, in arranging a, a transportation network as well as a temporary kind of lodging network and food network to kind of keep these people moving. So far, it hasn't, from what I can tell, it hasn't broken down. Three million people, I think that's pretty impressive so far from what I've seen. You talked to a lot of Ukrainian refugees while you were there in Poland. What conversations or stories really stuck with you? One morning I was in that shopping center, I think I mentioned to you, and I just found a woman, an uh, older woman by herself with a two-year-old baby, just sitting in a cold. It was very cold out. Sometimes people have to wait eight or nine hours for transport. They were heading, as I recall, to Lithuania. They had relatives there, which was, you know, going to be another 12-hour bus ride. And she was just sitting in the cold, and she, she didn't really want to talk, but I talked to her daughter. They had come from Kiev, and the daughter was a psychologist, and just spoke to me how she did not want to leave, but the building next to hers was bombed, and she was very concerned for the fate of her two-year-old daughter, whom the grandmother was holding. But the main point, and the point that all these people talk about, is a sense of division. Men between the ages of 18 and, and 60, basically, with few exceptions, are not allowed to leave Ukraine because they're eligible. Theoretically, they can be mobilized for military service. And so there's these you know, very dramatic departures these women were all women and children. I think 50% of these 3 million refugees are children. These people had to leave their husbands behind and their, you know, their fathers behind and brothers behind. I don't know where he is. I don't know if he's alive. And it takes a very high emotional toll. And I mean, I've covered a few refugee crises, but to see just so many women and children is really quite striking. What about the actual escape from Ukraine? Did anyone tell you any harrowing stories? Yeah, there were some harrowing stories. I remember another woman told me about she came from a city in the north, northeast of Ukraine, and they had to drive four or five hours to catch a train in Mariupol, which is now under siege. And they basically tried to drive at night without lights for fear of getting bombed on the road. And that's with three or four children in the back seat. You know, she was, you know, very scared about that. Some other people talked to me about sleeping in subway stations in various cities in Ukraine the night before they got on trains or other transport to the border. So people, you know, were quite shaken from that experience. Many of these people had you know, relatively stable middle class lives. And then, as is often a case with refugees from all over the world, but suddenly their lives were kind of um, uplifted in, in extraordinarily fast fashion and people were basically emotionally traumatized but nonetheless you know knew that they had to leave and get out what has surprised you the most about poland's response to ukrainian refugees 
What has surprised me the most is that how efficient it is from what I've seen, how quickly Poland was able to mobilize resources, free transport, lodging, places to stay, and just get these people on the road, basically west, to other parts of west and north, other parts of Poland and Europe. It seemed very well organized from what I saw. Is this response just human goodwill or is there also geopolitics involved? Because when it comes to refugees in the past decade, Poland is usually in the news for refusing them entry. But on the other hand, Poland has long lived in the shadow of an aggressive Russia. So I could understand, you know, why they feel for all these Ukrainians. What are the polls that you talk to saying about that? Yeah, I don't think there's any question whatsoever. I mean, Poles' historical rival has been Russia, and, you know, Russia and Vladimir Putin are not exactly popular in Poland. They're seen as potential aggressors. So here are these Ukrainians. They're kind of like, you know, brothers, and they're fleeing aggression by Russia, the thing that Polish politicians and Polish people fear most. So I think that definitely played a factor into it. There was a refugee crisis some months ago in which a number of people from Iraq and elsewhere tried to flee into Poland from uh, Belarus. And they were refused entry. So it was quite a different treatment. But it's clearly the historic rivalry with Russia and the political rivalry with, with Moscow played a big part in Poles' sympathy for these Ukrainians. The refugees that you talked to in Poland, what were their plans for the future? Do they expect to return to Ukraine at some point or do they think, no, we're, we're gone, we're going to have to start a new life in a new country? I mean, I covered the Syrian refugee crisis in 2015, five, six years, seven years ago, also into Europe. And the Syrians were basically knew they were gone. They weren't going back places. Their towns were blown up in Syria and so forth. Syria was under what many considered a hostile government. Just about every Ukrainian you talk to says, I'm going back, that I've talked to. They have every intention of going back. I mean, some people, I think somewhat naively said, hopefully I'll be back in a week or two. But I didn't get the feeling from, from many of these people that they thought this would be permanent. Most of them thought it would be a short-term thing. Some thought maybe a few weeks, some thought maybe a few months. But I, I really got the impression that these people expected to go back to Ukraine. You also spent some time in Medica, Poland, another city. And it was there that you met someone going the opposite direction of the refugees coming in from Ukraine. You met an expat that was living in Poland who was heading east instead of west to drive back to his homeland. That border town is called Medvika. It's really the principal border crossing between Poland and Ukraine. It has a massive amount of traffic. And, of course, that's where the bulk of the refugees were fleeing west. But going east, there were huge numbers of expatriate Ukrainians going back to fight. There's stuff on social media about entire, you know, building contractors in Norway just losing their entire workforce because it's all Ukrainians and they've all gone back, you know, uh, to fight for their country. It's a very, very large movement. I think that the president of Ukraine has said tens of thousands of Ukrainians have returned. It's obviously a very patriotic group and they've decided to go back and many of them intend to fight. More after the break. And we're back with my LA Times colleague, Patrick McDonald, who's on the ground in Ukraine covering the war. Since the beginning of the war, there's been attempts at peace talks, but they haven't gone really anywhere. What have the Ukrainians that you talked to said about how they're feeling about how this war is going to end? 
Well, you know what? When I first got here about two weeks ago and talking to refugees, they seemed to all think it was going to be over soon in a couple of weeks. I'm getting a vibe now that it's really kind of sinking in that this could be a long-term conflict. I really got that impression covering this funeral the other day, talking to people. Several people said, we, we just thought this wasn't going to last this long. And now, now we're seeing funerals in our streets of our town. What's going on? I think people are shocked that it's lasted this long. And I think there's a realization setting in that it could be long-term. Now, against that, there are peace talks. And I think the, the, the government in Ukraine has made some hopeful comments about those peace talks, that they're hopeful for some kind of a breakthroughs. From a standpoint of humanity, I think we can all be hopefully in favor of a quick resolution of this that, you know, stops the bloodshed without taking sides. And finally, Patrick, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has long been asking for NATO and the U.S. to impose a no-fly zone over his country. Is that the same type of help officials you've been talking to on the ground are asking for? The typical thing people tell you is if we could just stop the Russian Air Force, we could halt them on the ground. Russia has such a big and powerful army. He has been preparing for that for years. Uh, Without domination at the air, we're going to have significant victims. For instance, one person I talked to, a mayor in the municipality where the bombing occurred, Novoyevsky is roughly the town. The mayor's name is Vladimir Yaroslovich. He was very agitated when I spoke to him in his office. I waited and he, and he said, all we need from NATO is help on the air side. And if you don't do it, you will never be able to live down the shame of all the people who died because you in the West did not give us the aid we need. You will never be able to live down the shame of all the people who died because of this. I and mean, that's exactly what he said to me. He feels the West has been slow to react. Well, you put it in a very polite form. We will win no matter what. And it doesn't matter if a NATO country, EU or US will help us or not. It's just the, the thing is, if it's without your guys' assistance, it will be extremely high price for Ukrainian people. But he also said, you know, we're very thankful for the West for the help we've gotten. So there's a certain amount of resentment about this no-fly zone business, about the NATO and, and the West not providing a no-fly zone. But again, a no-fly zone is a very complex thing to set up, and it's understandably would be viewed by Russia as an extraordinarily provocative mood. I mean, visions of World War III are out there. These are nuclear-armed nations. It's a very complex topic. Patrick, thank you so much for this conversation. My pleasure and placer, como siempre. Thank you, Gustavo. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow, the politics around black women's hair has always been touchy. Then came the Oscars slap heard around the world. Kinsey Moreland and David Toledo were the jefes on this episode, and our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, Kasha Brasalian, Ashley Brown, Angel Carreras, and David Toledo. Hey, we're growing. Our executive producers are Jasmine Aguilera and Shawnee Hilton, and our theme music is by Andrew Eaton. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow The Times on whatever platform you use. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news in this madre. Gracias. <laughs>